guys, it's your host, Avery Carl with The Short-Term Shop. I am super excited to dive into our 10-episode mini-series on the Cascade Mountains in Washington State market. Super cool market, really cool part of the country. Wanna give you guys a couple of notes first before we get started. If you guys are looking for up-to-date income numbers or data or purchase prices on properties in these markets, you can find them at theshorttermshop.com. You can set up a search to look for properties in any of the 20 markets that we operate in. You can also sign up to work with any of our short-term shop agents in any of those markets. So if you buy with us in any of those markets, we teach you everything you need to know about how to manage a short-term rental for free. And you can do that at theshorttermshop.com. Also, if you know you want to work with us already, you can email us at agents at the shorttermshop.com and we'll get you set up with one of our agents in one of our 20 markets. We will, we have also got a Facebook group, short-term rental, long-term wealth, same title as my book on Facebook. If you guys want to just join us, it's 60,000 of my closest friends talking about short-term rentals and managing them and buying them all day long. And I believe that's it. And we can go ahead and dive into the show. Make sure to give us a like, follow, five-star review, etc., on YouTube. Instagram, Facebook, all at The Short-Term Shop. I'll stop talking at you and let's dive in. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of The Short-Term Show special episode series on the Cascade Mountains. Today, Doug and I are going to walk through the contract process in Washington State. So we're going to walk through kind of a sample contract as if I'm a buyer from beginning to end and everything that I need to know when it comes to the process of getting through a contract in Washington state. So Doug, I think they're pretty familiar with your familiar with you right now as we're on episode seven, but in case they aren't introduce yourself real fast. Hello everybody. I'm Doug Wolf. I'm the lone short-term shop agent in Washington state. Nice to have you here. All right. So let's just dive right into this. So let's say we found me a property. I'm really excited about it. The numbers work. It looks like a great deal. Really excited to get this thing under contract. So Let's talk about the terms of really any contract, but specific to Washington state. So let's talk about earnest money for a second. So what is earnest money and how much is the typical amount that you have to put down in Washington or not have to, but what's um, typical? Yeah. So earnest money um, is a a deposit. Basically you are demonstrating good faith that you're going to uh, follow through on the contract and actually purchase the property. And so the money basically is an act of good faith. Here you go. Um, I'm interested in buying this property and this money represents my level of interest is how I like to put it. Uh, 1% of the purchase price is kind of the guideline-ish of earnest money in Washington State. Um, you can do whatever you want. You could put $100 down, $100 down you could put a million dollars down, but uh, typically people tend to be around that 1% and that seems to be the acceptable uh, rate of earnest money. Okay. So pretty typical earnest money process. So, uh, let's talk a little bit about the refundability, if that's a word. So earnest money in Washington state is refundable, right? It is refundable. Um, it's pretty much refundable all the way through all of the contingencies. So, uh, inspection, inspection contingency, um, appraisal contingencies, things like that. Um, there are points in the contract um, where if you were to decide to walk away, um, you would be able to get your earnest money refunded. Okay. And what are those contingencies in Washington in which case your earnest money would be 
refundable? The most common is inspection. So, um, you know, you have an inspection done and the report comes back way more onerous than what you believe it to be, or there's a deficiency in the property that um, that you don't want to deal with or pay for. You could walk away at that point. Um, you can't really be ticky tacky about like cosmetic stuff in an inspection report, but like structural um, systems of the house, things like that. Um, you can get your earnest money re- refunded at that point. Um, the other typical one is appraisal. So if the property does not appraise at value um, to the offer, there's a negotiation between buyer and seller at that point. And um, if you can't agree there, then um, you could terminate the deal and receive your earnest money back at that point. Okay, cool. And we're going to come back to these contingencies and do a deeper dive on them a little bit later in the episode. But let's keep talking about the higher level terms of the contract for now. So let's talk about furniture. How is that addressed? If a property comes fully furnished, how do you address that in the contract in this state? Yeah, it has to remain outside of the real estate contract. Um, So we negotiate separately um, with the seller outside of the contract. So we we can't put even, uh, well, we could do a bill of sale within the contract, but escrow and title like to keep that clean and separate from um, the real estate contract in Washington state. Okay. And it is like that in a lot of states. And the reason that it's like that is because if a property comes fully furnished, say it's 500000 and it comes fully furnished, when you send this contract to the lender, lenders can only lend on real estate and not personal property. So furniture is personal property. And there becomes a question of, okay, how much of this 500000 is real estate and how much is personal property? So it can get really confusing and hung up and underwriting and potentially not go through. So you want to keep that furniture and other personal property off of the real estate contract. Okay. And now let's talk about disclosures because these can be a little bit different in different states, depending on whether the property has been lived in or just owned as an investment. So what is, what is the disclosure, whether it's seller's disclosure or what, what does, what typically, what types of disclosures have to be made when it comes to buying investment properties in, uh, in this state? So any property, uh, that is sold at least on the MLS. So I'm not talking about off market, but um, on the MLS has to have uh, a form 17 seller disclosure associated with it. Um, and that is a six page document with check boxes um, regarding all the systems of the house and the seller's knowledge of those systems. So um, essentially like at the bottom of the form, the buyer acknowledges that it's done to the best of the seller's ability. Um, so it's not necessarily a, um, how do I want to put it? It's basically the seller does it in good faith and the buyer accepts it and acknowledges receiving it, um, but it's not like um, an inspection report, if, if that makes sense. So it's yeah. it's not, yeah. Um, so seller disclosures are pretty, in any estate that I've done business, I haven't done one like there is in Washington State, um, where there, there are multiple, multiple pages of, the seller disclosing as much as possible on the property. Gotcha. So yeah, so you're saying that it's basically the seller saying, this is everything that I know about, but you know, if the home inspector finds like a leak or something that the seller didn't know about, we're not like going and suing sellers over that. This is to the best of their knowledge. Correct. Yeah. Um, It's not going to uh, reflect on the seller if they didn't know about uh, the, you know, leak in the roof is a good example. Yeah. 
Um, okay. So I think that's it for disclosures. So let's talk about, I mean, it's pretty standard disclosure stuff. Let's go back to the contingencies. So, well, actually, sorry, before we do that, let's talk about timelines that will then kind of segue into contingencies. So back to the earnest money timeline, there's going to be several timelines in a contract, not just the 30 day contract period. How long, how many days does a buyer have to get their earnest money sent into the title company or who, or whichever brokerage is holding the earnest money? Um, we can cite any number of days in the contract um, for that deposit. The typical length of time is three to five days. Okay, got it. So three to five days to do that. And now let's talk about the timeline for the inspection period, which the inspection is the first contingency of the contract. So that means this is a point where you can either renegotiate the contract or get your earnest money back and terminate. So what's typically the timeline to get an inspection done? The default on the contract is 10 days. Um, and in certain situations, um, if there's competition on a property, people might shorten that. So, um, you know, in the like five days, I think is probably the shortest I've ever done. And 14 days is probably the longest I've ever done. So um, somewhere between that five and 14 days, but 10 is the default. Okay. And once a buyer sends to the seller their list of things they either want fixed or the amount of money they want off in order to continue the contract, does a new timeline start or do we have to have all of that negotiated by this 10-day timeline? No. So let's say inspection happens on day 10 uh, and we make a request to the seller. Um, the seller has three days to respond to that. Um, and then based on the seller's response, response, the buyer has three days to respond to that. So um, it could go on, I suppose, for you know a week or so beyond the 10 days, depending on how long the negotiations take place between buyer and seller. How long do we have to come to an agreement to reach a signed by both sides agreement? Um, the 10 days plus three days on each side um, to consider what the other is offering. So that's six days total then after you send the initial, hey, this is the stuff that's wrong with it? Yes. Okay. Perfect. So now let's talk about the types of things that you might be able to get your earnest money back for. So in some states, the inspection period, you can only terminate based on material defects that are found on the inspection. In some states, it's more of a general due diligence. So it does not have to be something that was on the inspection report. It could be like, oh, I didn't realize the HOA said this. It could be anything related to due diligence. And in some states, it's an option period where you can terminate for any reason you want to. It is raining outside. So I want to terminate this contract. Which thing is it here? Uh, the second one. So it's more of a due diligence period. Um HOA could play into that. A um, you know, just the neighborhood review could play into that. So there are multiple things beyond the, the material defect that you could terminate for. Okay. So anything related to the due diligence of the property. Yep. Okay. And in this state, does the seller have to sign a release of the earnest money in order for the title company to release it back to you? Or is it automatic? No, the seller needs to sign a release. Okay. So I think that's something that's really important to remember. I just dealt with this. I was under contract in a market that I have never bought in before. and um, But the rules were the same. I terminated because there was a, a major item that the seller did not want to. It was like a $50,000 thing that the seller did not want to negotiate on. So we terminated. 
And then the seller decided that, well, you're not, you weren't acting in good faith when you terminated because your initial offer was lower than what we went under contract on. So you're just trying to get money off. So you're not acting in good faith. Well, nobody can decide that at the end of the day. No one can make that decision but a judge. So if they are trying to hold up your earnest money over something stupid like that, uh, you kind of just have to stay with it and be persistent about like, no, this is we are in in contract and this is how. And eventually it, you might have to get an attorney involved to write them a letter that says, hey, they are in contract. They did not breach the contract by doing this. So just something that I want you guys to remember. They did eventually, you know, it took two or three days of like, hey, you're not going to scare us back into buying this thing. We are terminating and we've met all of our requirements. And they did give the earnest money back. That's usually what happens when a seller wants to push back over something silly like that because nobody wants to lose the contract, right? Um, but just keep that in mind that if you're trying to like get under contract on a bunch of things at one time and terminate all but one on you know any little thing you can find, you can get yourself in trouble. It's not always an automatic thing. Sellers can decide they don't want to sign it. And if you can't get them to sign it, you have to get attorneys involved. But all that to say, I've never, I've only one time in my career seen that happen where something was actually filed because the buyer and seller could not agree. But 99% of the time, even if the seller pushes back, they will eventually sign it because they just want to get their property back on the market and move on. But keep that in mind. Don't try to get cute with terminating contracts because it will eventually bite you. I wasn't trying to get cute, but she thought I was. So just keep that in mind. Okay. So one thing I want to talk about really quick when it comes to finding your inspectors that we already did touch on on one of the other episodes is make sure that wherever you're getting your inspector recommendation from your agent, another investor, that you are calling the inspector, talking about what is and is not typical to find on an inspection in these markets um, so that you don't scare yourself out of something that may or may not be a big deal or so that you don't miss something so that you don't think something is not a big deal that is. So make sure that during these contingencies, you're calling and talking to your home inspector about what to, you know, what may or may not be a big deal. Do you need to call some contractors and, and ask some questions of them? Just make sure that you're asking all the questions of, of that licensed professional. Okay. Let's talk about, uh, I think we talked about act acting in faith. Okay. Next, what is the next contingency we might run into? So we've, we've gone through our inspection. We've asked for a few concessions. We've gotten those. So we're moving on to the next step. What's the next contingency that we're waiting on? Uh, appraisal. So uh, we, we agree on inspection, you know, items, if there are any, and then uh, we wait for the lender then to perform an appraisal on the property and come back with a, a value on the property. Okay. And let's say that the, the property appraises low. What are the options there? Uh, the options there are to go back to the seller and say, this is what the, the property appraised at um, and negotiate a new price based on that. Um, to bring so the buyer can bring more down payment to the deal um, if if they suspected that it might. Um, we could have had a appraisal gap put into the contract if we thought maybe uh, the property would appraise lower than what uh, the the offer was, um, or we can terminate the deal. Okay, so if it doesn't appraise, you you can terminate the deal. 
You can ask the seller to come down to the appraised value, or you can bring some extra money to the closing table to either come up to that appraised value or at some negotiated point in between the appraised value and the contract value. But keep in mind, if you choose to go that way, if you choose to bring the extra cash, your loan is not going to change. They will The bank will only lend you the amount that it appraises for, or they'll lend you 80% of that, whatever your down payment number is. They will not, everything else will have to be in cash. So if it appraises 100,000 low and you want to come up, you're going to have to come up 100,000. That's a very extreme number. I should have used 10, but um, that's, that's cash out of your pocket. So keep that in mind. And we aren't seeing a lot of that right now, right? Because it's, we saw a lot of that in 2021 and 2022 when there were a thousand buyers on every single property. We saw people coming out of pocket to meet appraisal values just to make sure that they got a deal. But right now we don't see that being required very much at all. You're, you can really, there's a lot more room to get a seller to come down nowadays because there's not as much, not as many buyers. So keep that in mind. Yeah, no, it's definitely not very common right now. Um, the offers that we're submitting are coming in at value almost every time. Uh, and we're generally offering under asking for properties right now. So awesome. Love to hear, love to get deals. All right. So let's talk about this, I think, is the contingency that confuses people the most, the financing contingency. So what is that, Doug? Yeah, that's uh, basically the buyer saying that um, they're going to make a good faith effort to obtain financing on the property um, and securing a loan for the property. Generally, I have buyers that are pre-approved and pre-qualified. So I actually (laughs) <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't become an issue very often but um but yeah the buyer is needs to prove that they can finance the property um either through um their own funds or through a bank at what point you know if somebody makes it all the way through the loan process and then something happens in underwriting they find something that maybe the loan officer didn't find or maybe the the buyer does something dumb like goes and finances a Lamborghini before closing and messes up their DTI what happens? Do they get their earnest money back if they truly can't qualify for the loan anymore? What does that look like? Yeah, as long as the buyer has made a good faith effort to obtain financing um, and um, has gone through all the process to do that and can prove that they have done that, um, then they would receive their earnest money back. Um, so if the if the purchase is contingent on financing, then um and and the buyer has made good faith to obtain that financing and can prove that, then they would receive their earnest money back. Okay. So if somebody loses their job, I think that's usually the more common thing is a job loss or a job transition, <clears throat> and they can't qualify for the loan anymore, then they get their earnest money back. Guys, though, something I really want you to pay attention to, though, is if you get cold feet and decide not to buy the property after you've already made it through your inspection and everything, and you try to get out on the financing contingency, your loan officer cannot legally write a loan denial letter. If you actually do qualify, they could lose their license for doing that. So please don't put them in that position of losing their livelihood or or having the potential to lose their livelihood and ability to like feed their kids and stuff because you got cold feet. So make sure that like, just make sure that you're telling the truth. If something happens, you can't qualify, no big deal. You get your earnest money back, but don't ask people to be dishonest for you because that's not cool. Um, anything else related to the general financing contingency, Doug? No, I would say it's uh, pretty in line with most states in terms of 
um, the ability to get out of the deal if you can't obtain financing. Okay, that's that's pretty straightforward. Um, okay, so let's talk about the final walkthrough or final inspection. So guys, uh, sometimes it's called final walkthrough, sometimes it's called final inspection. And it's not actually another inspection and a chance to renegotiate. What it is, is the opportunity for the buyer to make sure that the property is in the same or better condition as when they went under contract. And typically, there are two people who can do that final walkthrough for you, and neither one of them is Doug. Uh, there are two people. It is you as the buyer and your home inspector that you used for the original um, home inspection. If you want to be official, you could unofficially have like a cleaner or or a local contact to do that, but you run the risk. The same reason that Doug can't do it for you is that we're not... Um, home inspectors or contractors. I think Doug actually is a contractor, but in most cases we are not. So that that makes us not qualified to be able to say, oh, this was repaired or wasn't repaired or this wasn't repaired right. I'll tell you guys a horror story of like from when I was a new agent and I did a final walkthrough for a buyer. I just did a quick video and I, guys, so many times I'll have people say, well, my agent in Ohio did the final walkthrough for me. Well, your agent in Ohio is putting themselves and you at a liability. And here's why this is just a not, not a terrible example, not a very dramatic one, but I did a final walkthrough for a buyer, took video, you know, we just looked around, everything looked how it needed to look, looked the same as when I first walked through it. And so he closed. And then a few weeks later, he, I got a call from him screaming at me that the subfloor and one of the bathrooms around the toilet was squishy. And he wanted to come after me about that. Well, I didn't sit on the toilet. I wear motorcycle boots on a daily basis. I'm not sure I could even feel if a, a floor was squishy or not. Um, so that was not something that I was qualified to really be checking on and not something that I knew I even needed to look at, you know, final walkthroughs to look around, make sure it looks the same. It looked the same. I didn't walk over to the toilet. So anyway, I've never done a final walkthrough for someone since because um, it needs to be the home inspector who did the initial inspection or you as a buyer. You just don't want somebody who, you know, I'm, I don't know anything about squishy floors. I didn't even know to check for squishy floors. That's not something I would ever check for because I'm not, that's not what I do for a living. I don't know. It's not something that I know. So you want to have somebody that does know and does know to look for that kind of stuff. So Doug, do you have anything to add to that? You pretty much got it. I would uh -huh. say there's, um, that's a buyer's choice in the state. So there's not an official, like, um, got to sign off on your final walkthrough, uh, form in Washington state. Um, there is a, um, in the contract, there's a place where this, the seller in optional clauses um, is responsible to provide the property clean um, and clear of all debris and personal effects. So, um, but there's no, like, no final walkthrough form that I have to have the buyer and seller sign. Oh, interesting. That is different than other states. Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, now let's talk about last thing. So the last thing that happens in a contract is you close and you get the keys. So Doug in Washington, do they get the keys at the time of signing or do we have to wait until the seller says, okay, the money's hit my account. It's funded. It's actually um, on recording with the county Okay, uh, is the official get, getting keys. And so the county won't record unless funds have been transferred. So um, yeah, once the county in the state, in this state records, then we're clear to give keys or to exchange keys. 
How long does that usually take? So if I'm signing at 10 o'clock in the morning, is that a same day thing or do I have to wait a day or two? It's almost always same day um, unless unless for some reason docs are late or some, you know, something happens with with closing and it doesn't close until late in the day. Um, But I always tell my buyers not to assume it's going to record same day um, and to, you know, assume maybe it's going to be the next day so that they're not there waiting for keys on the day of close and it doesn't record. Yeah. So guys don't plan to drive a truck full of furniture up to Washington and close at four o'clock on a Friday and get your keys and go load everything in same day because that sometimes that doesn't happen. I've seen that happen to people in other states where stuff got delayed and they came in to close late on a Friday and then now it's not closing on Sunday and they've got a truck full of furniture. I mean, until Monday and they've got a truck full of furniture wondering what they're supposed to do with this for the weekend. So try to make sure you don't close on Fridays if you can uh, or you know, close remotely and get make sure all that's done and then drive up after the fact would be my recommendation, but do whatever works best for you. Just make sure you don't put yourself in that situation of being stuck without accommodations for two days. Yeah, because I can't give you keys or the seller won't give you keys until it's recorded. So yeah. All right. So Doug, I think that's it. Is there anything else that comes to mind about the contract process in Washington that we haven't gone over that you think people need to know before going and writing a contract in Washington? No, it's a pretty typical um contract state. I don't think there's anything. Uh, Septic, yeah, one thing, septics. So um, most of the properties in this market are on septic, not sewer. Um, And each of the counties has a septic contingency um, that the seller is responsible for to um, to pump out and to have the septic tank inspected prior to um, prior to sale or prior to closing. So that's an extra little one that comes up in pretty much every county that we do business in. Good to know. Good to know. Uh, anything else about the septic like um, that that needs to be disclosed? Um, not that needs to be disclosed. So the seller the seller is responsible for for getting that done um, in each county. So um, it's not really going to affect the buyer too much. There are there's there's some guidelines or some um, requirements coming down where they're also going to have to have the the drain field tested, um, which is, is a pressure test. And so that's going to be new in January. So just more onus on the seller to protect the buyer from getting a property with a bad septic tank gotcha. or drain, drain field. All right. Well, uh, if nothing else comes to mind, guys, if you're ready to start throwing out some contracts with Doug mm-hmm. in Washington, you can email us at agents at the shorttermshop.com. Or if you just want to hang out and learn more about short-term rentals, there's a few ways you can do that. You can join our public Facebook group at short-term rent or sorry, on Facebook. Uh, the name of it is short-term rental, long-term wealth, same title as my book. Or you can join us every Thursday for a live Q&A and you can sign up for that at strquestions.com. Thanks, Doug. We'll catch you on the next one.